Hi, I'm Christine Murray, and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings more than the buildings themselves. This week, I'm excited to bring you one of our talks from the Festival of Place. They are full of fresh thinking and challenging ideas. I hope you'll come to one of our future events. It's a great opportunity to meet up and learn from this community. Let's tune in. So welcome to our second session, How Do We Renew Places with Equity in a Climate Emergency? Um, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this session where we're going to explore how we can re respect environmental and planetary boundaries while doing some of the much needed work to address social inequality in the UK. We have an amazing panel today. I'm so pleased to um, introduce them. I'm going to introduce all three, and then they're going to come up and do their talks. And of course, that will be followed by a uh, Q&A session and uh, discussion. So get your questions ready. I'll also be checking for those of you on the online edition. Do share your questions. We will be picking those up as well and monitoring the chat. So. Um, uh, Leonora Gracheva is Cities and Regions Lead at the Donut Economics Action Lab. An urban, she's an urban planner, a researcher, a participation practitioner with over a decade of experience facilita facilitating engagement with communities, cities, and regions through her work as an urban planning consultant for UN Habitat. Uh, we have Pooja Agrawal, the co-founder and chief executive of Public Practice, who is an architect and planner who worked as a public servant at Homes England and the GLA, as well as in private practice um, at places such as Publica, and we made that before founding Public Practice. She also co-hosts the diversity platform Sound Advice, and Karen Jalangi, who's founder and director of Activate the City. Activate the City is a social enterprise and creative agency. They provide an avenue for community development and youth empowerment by delivering social action-focused programs that make a tangible impact on local communities. Uh, hi, I'm from the Donut Economics Action Lab, and I'm going to briefly talk about what Donut Economics is and how we're working with planners, with policymakers, with changemakers globally to actually put it into practice in cities. So we know that... We've started the 21st century with multiple crises, the financial meltdown, the climate breakdown, the COVID lockdown, and all of these crises are to some extent or another emerging from the systems that we've created. Systems that are built around endless expansion, expansion of finance, expansion of energy, of resource use, and we need to start rethinking these 20th century economic systems that we've inherited and start building new visions of what progress should actually look like that are more fit for purpose for the challenges that we're facing in the 21st century. And this is where the donut comes in. So the donut, which is a new way of thinking um, put forward by uh, English economist Kate Rayward, is really, you can think of it as a compass for human prosperity. So what is this image of the donut? If you think of the inside of the circle as human, humanity's use of resources, of Earth's resources, radiating outside towards the outer circles. In the inner hole of the donut, we have all the people in the world that are falling short on life's essentials. They don't have enough water, enough food, enough energy, enough health. So we as a humanity want to get collectively everybody outside of that hole and across the social foundation and into that safe space of the donut. However, 
we cannot let as humanity for our collective use of resources to continue putting pressure on the planet. Because once we start reaching that outer circle of the donut, that ecological ceiling, we start breaking down Earth systems. We start causing climate change. We start causing a hole in the ozone layer. We cause biodiversity loss and extinction of species. So we need to start working on this 21st century challenge that we're now facing, which is getting everybody out of poverty, out of deprivation, while coming back within the safe limits of the planetary boundaries. And this is what the, the simple vision that the donut embeds, really. It's defining human prosperity as, and, and our goal for prosperity as meeting the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. And these inner and outer circle, the social foundation and the ecological ceiling are coming from kind of uh, from existing frameworks. So the social foundation is crowdsourced from the sustainable development goals that have been agreed by the majority of global governments, while the outer circle, the ecological ceiling, are the nine planetary boundaries, which have been defined and identified by Earth scientists just over a decade ago. So very new scientific information and uh, a growing understanding that there are these nine systems and each of them, once we start crossing that threshold, can cause kind of planetary-wide environmental damage that is irreversible and that will have impact on all of humanity. So the goal is to stay within this safe and just space of the donut. However, the reality of where we are right now as humanity is this image. And this is, we can call this a collective selfie of humanity, of our planet, so using quantifiable indicators for both the social foundation and the ecological ceiling, this is how we're doing as humanity right now. We have millions of people globally that are falling short on all of life's essential. They don't have that access to energy, to water, to food, to health, to education, income and work, peace and justice, political voice, social equity, gender equality, housing or networks. And at the same time, whilst having these global levels of deprivation, we're also pushing on multiple of these planetary boundaries already. We have crossed climate change and we've crossed the levels of, in which this is reversible. We've caused biodiversity loss. We've converted too much land. We've used uh, too much nitrogen and phosphorus. And this is the first time, you know, due to essentially new science, new data, we are maybe the first generation that can see this image that can realize how we're doing right now as a humanity, and we're the first generation that can start doing something to reverse this image. So what does that mean? What does it mean for us to start moving towards living in that uh, safe and just space of the donut? If we want to transform our future and our cities and the places in which we live in, we need to be transforming the systems on, on which we're um, functioning from divisive and degenerative to distributive and regenerative by design. And what does this actually mean? And what does this mean in cities and in places? So we've inherited systems and economies that are degenerative. We take Earth's resources, we use them, we produce things, we throw them away, we create waste. We take, we make, we use, we lose. And this is what is pushing us against those planetary boundaries and continuously running down Earth's support, life-supporting systems. 
And we should be turning these linear errors into circular errors and starting to be regenerative by design, working with the cycles of the living world, recycling more, restoring more, using the resources more slowly, more creatively, more carefully. And how does this look into practice? This is something that you know, cities and places are already doing, and there are many great examples of how to be regenerative by design. It can take shape uh, from urban reforestation in Freetown, where they're planting one million trees in two years to combat climate change, but also to address local issues, the, to restore the local ecology and address mudslides. Or this urban uh, stormwater wetland uh, park in Quinli in China, where they're maintaining and restoring the natural habitats, the soil and the uh, the groundwater, as well as all the living creatures living in those habitats, while at the same time creating recreational spaces for, for people around it. Or we could be regenerative by uh, thinking how we use the materials, such as this circular construction, which Amsterdam is really uh, taking forward uh, in, in the past years and the past decades with entire experimental neighborhoods build with circular uh, construction principles and testing labs where they keep on improving these systems and finding new ways to be circular and to reuse materials. Or the circular partnership in Denmark where you have nine different and maybe now more different industries, private and public, in this, located in the same area that build a partnership around the principles of sharing each other's resources so that the waste of one industry becomes the raw resource of another and they collectively reduce the impact by sharing water, energy, and materials. And at the same time, we need to be thinking about how to become distributive by design. So again, we've inherited systems that are divisive, that are capturing opportunity and value in the hands of a few, and we're seeing some presentations before that were really exemplifying how this you know, looks like in, in practice and the impact it has on people, whether it comes from structure, from privilege, from regulations. We should be working and changing the systems to become distributive so that opportunity and value is shared between all those who are created in societies. And that's really all members of society. And again, how, does, how can this look like in, in practice? And it can take uh, many shapes, such as community land trust housing, and I'm very happy that we learned quite a lot about it today. And there are many different forms of community-owned, community-managed assets in the UK and outside, or community well-being, uh, uh, a, a model that Preston has been championing, where the city realized that it has purchasing power, that it has city institutions, that it has hospitals, schools, and different public agency, and all of them have purchasing power, and they've been using the procurement processes to actually invest in the local economy, to invest in local socially owned uh, cooperatives, and to build a local economy through that power. Or we have affordable housing in Vienna, where 60% of people live in actually affordable housing, and the entire city helps to maintain that system by paying a, a levy on everybody's salary, 1% uh, annually. Or these have houses in Chile where essentially affordable housing was built for many low-income families by building the, the bare essentials, the minimum that they needed 
to start and allowing them the chance to start investing incrementally in building their homes as they will have money to allow it in the course of their, their lives. So these are kind of the core principles of, of how we need to be looking at transforming our systems. So how do we now approach that when we start working with cities and looking at how to approach, how to use this donut economics framework? And the overarching principle is that once we look at downscaling this global donut into a place, we unroll it and we zoom into that ecological ceiling and that social foundation, those two themes, the ecological ceiling and the social foundation become four lenses because when we start talking about places, we need to be thinking about both the local aspirations of a place at the same time as the global accountabilities, the global responsibilities of a place. So when we start working with this uh, approach, it, it really all starts with one overarching question. How can this place, London in, in, in this case, how can London become a home to thriving people in a thriving place while respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet? And all these four lenses are embedded into this question. So how can London be as generous as the wildland like next door thinking about the local ecology? How can all the people of London thrive? So these are the local aspirations. And at the same time, thinking about how can London respect the health of the whole planet while respecting the well-being of all people. Kind of, and to dive into these four, four lenses, um, we can start looking at you know, the, the local social lens, as we call it. So how can all the people of London thrive? And we, we're looking across all of these dimensions, all of these white icons on the bottom, food, water, health, education, housing, etc. And this can be very different from different places. Different themes may, may be bigger or smaller priority in different places. So we can be exploring all the aspects of what it means to thrive in a place. And we can start asking questions through which we can start exploring this lens even more, specifically if we're talking about the built environment. So what does thriving actually mean to people here? What does it mean to communities? As there are very different definitions. All communities are different. All places are different. Are we taking that into consideration as we're planning and building? How can every family have a decent home? You know, how can we be looking outside of the box? How can we be challenging the systems or looking at an alternatives method of housing, of funding, of building, of ownership to, so that everybody can have a decent home? And how can we make sure that homes are designed for everybody, for different families, for different cultures, for intergenerational families, or for working from home families? And whose voices are not being heard? You know, how can we take into consideration all the different groups that may be disenfranchised? How can we give agency to all the different people and include them in the process? So that's kind of thinking about the local people and that social aspect. And at the same time, we start asking, how can London be as generous as the wildland next door? So this lens is about recognizing that every place is based within a natural habitat. And if we go to our closest natural habitat, whether that's a forest or a desert or a wetland, we can start learning how nature works there, how it restores and it regenerates itself, and how it keeps the systems in balance. And we can start finding ways to imitate and match that so that we go beyond just being sustainable 
and mitigating our negative impacts on nature and towards being restorative, regenerative, and actually enhancing nature and taking care of it. And again, we can start exploring that more, uh, looking at these uh, themes and icons on the top and asking different questions as we're planning, as we're designing, as we're building. Well, how can we store more carbon and harvest solar energy? Well, how can we cover as many surfaces as possible with huge canopies that store carbon? How can we protect our mature trees? How can we use green terraces and rooftops to create more green spaces? How can we better manage water and build more soil? So can we collect rainwater and use it and then recycle it into nature systems? Can we leave as much surface porose as possible so that we're absorbing the rain and keeping the soils healthy while at the same time protecting ourselves from flooding and climate change? And how can we welcome more wildlife? Thinking for, of everything from planting trees and plants for pollinators to creating and maintaining passages for foxes, for squirrels, for hedgehogs to, to go around from one garden to another and, and look for food. And once we look at these global aspirations, now we need to zoom out and start thinking of our, after our local aspirations, we need to start looking at our global responsibilities. So how can London respect the health of the whole planet? And this is about recognizing that all the materials we use, everything we build, is leaving some sort of footprint on the planet here or in different places of the planet. And how can we start recognizing this and taking it into consideration in, our, in the way that we build, in the way that we design spaces? And we can look at the nine planetary boundaries, the icons on the top, and start exploring how we could be careful about uh, not doing any further damage in any of these themes by asking these questions as we're designing. So how can we, and many other questions, these are just ways to explore, but we could be asking thousands of different questions. You know, how can we build circularly? How can start thinking of the full life cycle of buildings? How can we make sure that everything we use has been recycled or is recyclable? Are we thinking about what happens when the buildings we design are demolished? Can it steal its glass, its concrete, its cables be disassembled and reused again, or are they going to be turned into waste and put additional pressure? How can we reduce how much we build by retrofitting, using what's already there and avoiding additional construction and demolition? How can we produce locally to reduce our global impact? So much food is being imported uh, from overseas, from other countries, making huge impact through transport, so how can we start designing places and spaces that encourage local production of food? How can we look at all the surfaces or rooftops or alternative approaches like vertical farms or hydroponics and embed this into our designs to start thinking about reducing our global impact? And finally, the fourth lens is about our accountabilities to all the people of the world. So how can London respect the well-being of all people and this is about recognizing that behind every product and every material that we use, there's human labor. And we're connected to many people and many countries and many communities globally, specifically through global supply chains and also in many different ways, in migrations and uh, refugee crises and through the uh, additional impacts on, on their communities we do. 
but in the built environment specifically, we could be really reflecting on the global supply chains and where, what is the labor behind what we're, what we're using, what we're building. How are the construction elements we use produced? Where are the raw materials coming from? What have been the working conditions of the people that have mined these materials, that have produced, that has worked in these factories and in these storages? Do we know that they haven't worked in exploitative conditions and that they've had you know, dignified jobs? And what happens to the construction waste we produce? You know, does this impact other communities elsewhere? Does this get exported, impacted, impacting local livelihoods and qualities of life? So once we start looking across these four lenses, and this is kind of at, at, at the core of, of, of this approach, is a, a way to continue looking across, across silos, really, and looking at the big picture and the small picture at the same time, thinking locally and thinking globally. And it's a way to keep on challenging ourselves when we plan our future neighborhoods, when we plan our future cities, making sure that we're making most of it. And this could be about envisioning the places of tomorrow, but it could also be about being critical and rethinking the places that we're building and designing today. So if we start putting any projects, any neighborhood, any master plan in these four lenses, we can start looking for ways how it can become even more. How can any great projects contribute even more to local nature, contribute even more to global planetary health, contribute even more to local communities and, and global communities? And we could do this to use a, a, an example of a project I like, taking any project, you know, putting it in the middle of these four lenses. This is a an ex-industrial space in Turin, in, in Italy, where this massive canopy and this huge industrial space was reused and turned into a covered space for children and teenagers to play in. So it's a massive skate park and play area that they can play during the day and the evening, where they can be creative and design, where they can meet and, and you know, draw on the walls. So it's an amazing project that you know, reuses spaces that targets social local needs, but we can start thinking and wondering how could it do even more if we start thinking of the bigger picture and we start thinking holistically. Could it maybe welcome local refugee teenagers? Could this become a space of refuge and connection building for them as well? Could the massive roofs be used for solar panels and producing big amounts of solar energy? Could, could it be designed so that teenage girls who are often excluded from these spaces are also included and, and uh, accounted for? And we could start looking at across existing initiatives that maybe exist in that neighborhood or existing challenges that the city is facing and find all these ways and identify even more opportunities and interconnections to, to do better. And this is kind of this holistic view is at the core of how cities are starting to work with donut economics globally. And we're in a, in a very new and exciting period of time when we're learning with and from cities and we're innovating how to do that. And we're seeing that many cities are taking different paths towards doing this. From Melbourne, where they've used this holistic approach to set up a massive participatory exercise and build a, a vision a community-led vision for the city, for Melbourne of the future. 
to Amsterdam, where they've used these four lenses to develop a new set of metrics, actual quantifiable indicators of how the city is doing and to measure the progress of the city based on these indicators rather than on, on limited indicators of, of growth. Or in Brussels, where they've built a holistic vision and they've also started looking at how different urban policies or neighborhood renewal policies or planning policies could be reviewed and upgraded through using this four-lens approach. To Cornwall, where they've um, applied this, changing how they decide, how they make decisions about big budgets and big projects in the councils, replacing the cost-benefit analysis with a decision-making will built around environmental and social indicators. Yep. And th these are just, we're running out of time and there are many different ways and uh, in which cities are working. So I'll just invite you to come and visit our, our website and start browsing through all these stories, get inspired, add your thoughts and yes, just join us in this learning process. Thank you. Hello everyone, it's really nice to see everyone in all the 3Ds and hi to everyone online as well. So the question we were asked to respond to today was how do we renew places with equity in a climate emergency? And I think there's three different elements to this question. We're talking about equity, we're talking about climate emergency, and then we're sort of asking how does place relate to both of these key elements. So I'm hopefully speaking to the converted here that people see the obvious link between equity and place. The horrific murders of Sarah Everard and Sabina Nessa just show the, the direct link between safety for women and for brown and black women and the places we occupy are not equitable. I think people understand the re relationship between the climate emergency and place. This is about our very environment. It's about heating. It's about the air we breathe. It's about forest fires. It's about place. But perhaps the link that is maybe least spoken of or least understood is this relationship between the climate emergency and equity. And actually, what is the role of place within that relationship? So I thought about maybe three examples that we can try and think about how do these three different aspects link together. So the first one to think about is air quality. So minority ethnic groups were known to dis be disproportionately affected by COVID-19. They accounted for 34% of critically ill people in the UK, despite it con constituting a 14% of the population. There has been a report that looked at the role of housing and air quality and COVID-19 patients, concluding that patients of black, Asian and minority ethnic, BAME, and that, that's the way the term that evidence is gathered at the moment, but anyway, are more likely to be admitted from regions of highest air pollution, housing quality and household um, overcrowding deprivation. 
And this is likely to contribute to an explanation towards higher admissions reported among COVID-19 patients of BAME. I have been myself, um, I'm an architect and planner by background and I've worked in policy and, and, and the public sector for a number of years. And I have seen the, when, when you're doing design reviews, for, ooh, sorry, for social housing, often, um, the, the, sorry, social housing is often placed in the worst, worst positions on the site and often they're placed in next to the motorway where windows can't even be opened because the air quality is so bad. Fuel poverty. The conversation here has been, oh my God, it's so annoying. There's such so many queues outside my house at the moment. I can't go anywhere. It takes so long to move anywhere. Sure, we're looking at COP26 to, for answers on our reliance on fossil fuels. But the bigger fear, the bigger question here that we're starting to talk about is what impact is that going to have on people's heating and how and what does the winter look like this year? But actually, in the medium term, what does that look like within the next year or two? And um, fuel poverty has a number of impacts on the most vulnerable people in society. It affects mental health asthma and excessive winter deaths. So we know the most vulnerable people in society are going to be impacted by this on a daily basis. Basically, these huge global issues and global crisis has a day-to-day -day impact on everyday people's lives. And then finally, flooding. I mean, this is almost an ode to um, Christine's tweet that went viral. I worry about the impact this is going to have in terms of where people want to live I grew up in Mumbai, in Bombay, as was popularly known in India, and lived on reclaimed land. And I grew up going to school with floods like up over my knees. That was our kind of normal reality. I suppose that's the equivalent of snow days in the UK. But you, you start to see um, in the kind of medium to long term that the impact that has in, in, on terms such as land value, where people, places perhaps that are flooded more, will in the longer term start to be the places where people who can afford to will move out of these places and people who don't have the choice to live where they'd like to will be impacted by this. So there's definitely um, a link here around safety, privilege, place, and therefore and the climate emergency. So I guess the question then is how? How do we do this? I think there's kind of three elements to this. We need to be thinking in the longer term. We need to be thinking about these sort of 25 plus year strategies. A five year strategy is not a long term strategy. So we need to be thinking in that kind of long term, looking at evidence, trying to work out what is the impact going to be on our places in terms of flooding and overheating and, and such. In this country, those are, the, I suppose, the most specific um, issues we need to deal with. We need to be thinking about all the people, um, people that are most vulnerable in society, people who might not have the loudest voices and really understand the impact that this has at a local level, level at an everyday basis for everyday people and, and the huge impact this has on daily lives. And then finally, I think it's about investment. I think Loretta mentioned this earlier, Alicia was talking about this earlier as well. It's about how do we invest in existing places, in existing buildings, in retrofitting existing buildings, working with communities and not against communities. So how do we start to tackle issues like fuel poverty, which is linked to retrofitting in a more strategic manner? So I guess the question is, 
who is the best place to deliver this, to actually push this forward. And from my perspective, I think the public sector in its best form has the opportunity to think in the longer term, to think and represent all people and, and to be able to make investments in, in social value, in things that are not necessarily something that, public, um, that the market would see as a, a good place for investment. So, but in order to do this, the public sector needs to be confident, it needs to be entrepreneurial, it needs to be diverse, and it needs to be multidisciplinary in order to really take leadership and drive change. And this is where public practice comes in. For those of you who don't know what public practice is, we're a social enterprise and not-for-profit, and our mission is really to build the public sector's capacity to improve the quality and equality of everyday places for now and the future. And it touches on all the three elements we're talking about today. It's about places, it's about equality, and it's for the future. We place people with multidisciplinary backgrounds in the built environment into local authorities and in the public sector more generally for one-year placements. They spend 90% of their time in the public sector doing their role and 10% of their time we curate a learning and development program and opportunities to share learning and best practice in the public sector more generally. Uh, over the last four years, we're quite a young um, organisation, we've placed over 200 people across 46 authorities in the southeast, and, as, and we're looking to the future to grow our impact nationally. But really, I thought what might be quite useful is just to give a couple of examples of what some of the associates have been doing in their placements that start to link these three elements together. So we had um, Tara Bolade, who worked in Harlow and Gilston Garden Town, and she was a sustainability officer. And her like, ambition was obviously working with her team was to create interactive sustainability guidance and for officers and for applicants who are working at that kind of planning level. Interestingly, this looked at um, sustainability from an environmental point of view, from an economic point of view, but also from that social sustainability point of view. And her ambition was to make it as simple as possible. How do we make this really, really accessible and actually make it work on a daily basis for officers and for people um, in, in the area? really easy to navigate and therefore really easy to implement. Another example is Letitia Pancresi, who uh, was an environmental and sustainability advisor, who was basically leading an action plan at a more strategic level in Ashford Borough Council. We know that the, one of the um, criticisms of public sector and, and local authorities is this is a siloed way of working and the bureaucracy. So actually, how do you bring people across lots of different departments when we're talking about something like air quality? Actually, it, it has to bring lots of different people from different backgrounds and expertise to be able to solve these holistic problems. And even, uh, it, it sounds so simple, but even just creating a task force from people across the authority to be able to actually action this and really think about what this looks like on the ground in, in sexy spreadsheets, but also being able to then influence corporate plans and ambitions for the local authority in that kind of longer term view and, and get that political buy-in that this is what we want to do in the long term. And finally, it's thinking about, again, the delivery on the ground. We're talking about it actually doesn't need to be people necessarily who have the sustainability expertise, but actually buildings and thinking about um, developing and delivering and that is diverse to be able to really push this kind of long-term view to create sustainable places for all people. Thank you very much.
Hi everyone. Um, I just want to say thank you so much to Christine for inviting me to speak today. Um, when she asked me to talk about how do we renew places with equity in the climate emergency, um, I thought it was quite a hard topic to talk about, but um, what I thought was really important is thinking about our next generation and how they're a key player in looking at the climate emergency and how we tackle it. So I'm going to talk a bit about today. Um, first of all, my name is Karen Jalenji and I'm the director of Activate the City, and I'll tell you a little bit more about what we do. Um, but today I'm, I'm gonna be talking about how do we hear and incorporate um, youth voices and give them agency with climate action and justice. So Activate the City, we're a social enterprise and creative agency um, that works to facilitate youth-led community development. And for me, it's not just about spaces and buildings, but it's also about what happens um, when buildings get built and how do we build communities. And I think the key thing is how do we actually develop communities by collaborating uh, with each other. So our aim is to train and invest in the next generation of, com of community leaders and change makers from underrepresented backgrounds. Uh, and I've highlighted invest because it's about value, it's about money, like you have to invest in these young people so that they can be the change makers of tomorrow. And I'm also passionate about how we can get more working class people from backgrounds like mine um, to be interested in kind of investing in their communities and making a change. So in, in, in all, we believe in using creativity and design as a tool for social change and to fight systemic equalities. Um, this is a project that we did uh, over lockdown, obviously like we, we had those COVID. Um, and obviously it was, the, it was the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests and what happened in May. Um, and this is an example of how we can use like young people's creative expression to kind of highlight um, how they're feeling um, and raise awareness of issues that aren't being talked about. So one of the projects that we're working on at the moment is called Creative Youth Labs. Uh, it's, a, it's an initiative where we're taking over spaces and running educational programs focused on equipping young people with creative problem sk solving skills and applying them to a social action. Um, we're currently guided by three sort of S uh, sustainable development goals. Um, and that's what we're kind of using as a framework uh, to, to, in terms of teaching young people how they can use social action for change. So in terms of the topic at hand, uh, I'll just start by saying uh, we can't look at spatial inequality by looking at the two big issues around it, which is environmental justice and racial justice. And I'll say that twice. Environmental justice and racial justice are intrinsically linked. Um, this is a visual representation of what that looks like. So a lot of the work that we do is based in London, but as you can see from these two maps, um, which is the indices of multiple deprivation and the climate risk lap, uh, map, which you can access on .gov.uk, there's a strong link between um, inequality and also how, how, how at risk um, communities are in terms of um, climate change. Um, and yeah, it's obviously something that's been existing and something that needs to be acknowledged, but I can't sit here and talk about climate change without thinking about the inequalities that are already existing in, in London and other cities. So back in 2019, uh, I was living and working uh, for Bristol, Bristol City Council. Um, and this is a picture of the school for strikes, stri school strike for climate um, demonstrations uh, with young people kind of taking a day off school um, and yeah, striking for climate change. 
Um, I looked outside the window and it was like such an amazing view. You could hear the young voices. Um, everyone kind of stopped what they were doing. But one thing that I really noticed was that why wasn't there anyone that looked like me in that crowd? Um, I've got African parents, so they're very big on education. So I couldn't imagine telling my mom, like, yeah, I'm going to go out and uh, protest about climate change. It just wouldn't happen in my house. So that's one thing that I'd always been curious about, is like, how come there's so many young people doing stuff, but where are the people that represent Bristol? And Bristol is quite a multicultural city, um, but obviously with this vision, I wondered, like, why aren't these people present in that space? And another thing, what does an activist look like? Obviously, everyone's really aware of, of Greta Thunberg and the work that she does. But for me, I think it's also about how you uh, include more voices in, in terms of like, activism and what that looks like. So here are some of the, my favorite people that I look up to in terms of activism um, from popular culture. And also, young people like the collective Choked Up, who are doing lots of work around air pollution, which uh, Pooja mentioned earlier today. So I'll talk a bit about the project that we run this summer, which was um, the Youth Climate Lab. Um, our key aim really was, how do we get more diverse voices that represent London? So what does this real London look like? Which we basically recruited nine young people from different parts of London. Um, seven, they represented seven London boroughs and one out of London. It was six weeks and one showcase event. And our aim was to bring a group of diverse young Londoners together to start new conversations that center their own narratives about climate change and to be inspired to take action and encourage their peers to do the same. And a lot of our work is about narratives. Alicia talked a bit about how important um, it is to be able to tell stories. And I think that's really powerful when it comes to activism in itself, but also change. So these are some of the guests that were joined by us. Um, we had Usaid, who was from um, an organization called Black and Brown Film, and Carol Wright, who also, um, she runs Black Outside. I, I'd encourage you to watch these, these films. Uh, one of the key films that we watched was about um, Ella Kissadebra, who was a nine-year-old um, girl who died of air pollution in the South Circular. I'm going to talk a bit about her later on. Um, so yeah, it was just providing a space for these young people to start uh, learning about climate action, climate change, um, finding different ways of expressing themselves through art um, design, but being comfortable in that space. I'm just going to end with sort of like, not end, but talk about some of the things that we found from doing this, this uh, lab. So one thing that I think is really important in terms of young people and, and inspiring them is, is learning outside the classroom. I truly believe that knowledge is power, but currently the education system is kind of not up to date with what's going on in the world. So I think being able to have a space where they can learn about things that are important to them in terms of the community um, the second is listening. I think live, live experiences matter, uh, and we found a lot with that, with talking to the young people, letting them express themselves and talk about their local areas. They all lived in different parts of London, but everything that they talked about, they didn't really connect with climate change. Um, but understanding that, you know, they have similar experiences, different ones, and getting a whole scope of what these, these inequalities look like. Um, using accessible language, another one. A lot of the climate space, there's lots of jargon, words that I couldn't even understand myself. It's like, how do we get young people to understand the concepts of, of the climate emergency by letting them use the language or tools or things like social media that they can express themselves? It's not just about words. Images were really powerful. And the last thing was that young people should not be put in a box. So 
out of the nine young people, I feel like they, they'd created probably like 15 different subcultures between themselves. Um, I think young people come in all different shapes or like experiences. So it's being able to be conscious of that, that as well in terms of working with them. So in terms of the outcome, these are one of the outcomes that we, we had. Um, we created a zine, which was a collection of their stories. Um, and this is an image by Aya, which talks about Ella Kisadebra. So if you don't know anything about Ella, she was a nine-year-old girl who um, suffered from asthma, but she lived on the South Circular um, near Lewisham. Um, she died in 2013, and then in 2020, in December, the, the coroner gave the verdict of uh, air pollution as the main cause of her death. So for me, I think it's really shocking to see that it's taken seven years for that verdict to be made. And when I go back to uh, talking about environmental justice and spatial inequality, um, her mum, like Rosamond, um, she basically had, didn't really understand what was going on with her, with her daughter. Um, and then it took about seven years for them to start investigating and getting that verdict. And one of the, one of the key things around running this uh, climate lab was about how we get communities that are come from, from unequal backgrounds to be able to be equipped with the knowledge to be able to, to actually um, fight for decisions like that where they, they actually acknowledge that it was, it was air pollution. Um, so this is kind of an image that was made by Aya, which kind of shows how, like, expresses how bad this situation was. Um, and hopefully an example of how like, young people can play a key role in raising awareness of these things. So I'm just going to end by reading a poem from one of the um, young people on the programme, Jess, um, just to express how young people feel. And also this is Ella, by the way. Eco-anxiety is familiar to all of us who fear the scorching, changed, frustration, guilt, grief, panic, terror for our earth, our home, cannot be overcome until the crisis is averted, cancelled, stopped. Activism has a definition of, of using action, often confrontational, to achieve a result in support or opposition of an issue. What counts as activism? Protests, marches, community events, yes, and rallies, speeches, hard conversations, yes, and petitions, gardening, making art, sharing experiences, we use activism to put all our anxious emotional energy to use, to blow on the collective flame within ourselves that needs to burn hotter than the fossil fuels. Acid rain, campaign, overwhelming, overcome, global, hmm, economy, global, movement. Climate change, climate crisis, always a lot more to learn. And I just want to give a shout out to our Climate Lab cohort. That is Annalise, Anissa, Atta, Aya, Kajal, Kalisha, Jeff Zen, Puria, and Raphael. Um, so I asked you earlier, what does an activist look like? And this is what they should look like. It should be more diverse, but I'll end on that. Uh, thank you for listening to me. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. 
You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.